We are in week number four of a series called You Asked For It, and uh, we've allowed you to text in questions, questions about life, about God, about the Bible, and uh, we've dedicated a few weeks to answering questions straight from God's Word. We're taking a, a position of saying, what does God's Word have to say about everyday questions that many of us have and we carry around with us in life? And so we've had some, some tense weeks where we've talked about some topics that affect us all uh, nationally and personally on some different levels. And today I had originally actually planned to answer uh, kind of a plethora of questions. I felt like there were uh, several questions that came in that um, I could just spend a few minutes talking about and kind of get through a plethora of questions today. But um, as I started studying uh, on kind of a theme of a couple of those questions, I just really felt like I wanted to take some time to teach you uh, about a topic today. And so today we're going to be dealing with topics of um, confession, repentance, and forgiveness, uh, tenets of the Christian faith uh, that many of us have felt like maybe for years are simple issues that we didn't really have any questions about. But as I just kind of studied, I began to ask myself some questions and uh, just found it to be helpful for me. And so hopefully it'll be helpful for you. So what I want to do is I want to read three questions to us and uh, we'll uh, commit to tackling those three questions throughout the remainder of our time together. But then we're going to jump into a good bit of scripture today. So hopefully that's okay with you. We here at Synergy love the Bible. We believe that it's our roadmap for living and that uh, every source of answer that we may need in life can be found in God's Word. And so we're just going to jump into some scriptures this morning. But let's, let's look at a couple of questions that we're going to tackle this morning. Number one, do you have to repent from every sin to be forgiven? Do you have to repent from every sin to be forgiven? We'll talk about what some of these words are in case you're not familiar with uh, church or some of the words that we use in church. We'll talk about those in just a minute. And I actually want to take this question and kind of ask it a different way uh, because I think it may be helpful as well. And this is the question I want to pose. Do you have to confess every sin to be forgiven? Do you have to repent from every sin in order to be forgiven? Do you have to confess every sin in order to be forgiven? Is forgiveness just freely given and you just have a blanket of covering in life? Or do you have to specifically name and confess sins that you commit for God to forgive you and then repent of those sins in order to receive that forgiveness? I thought it was a question that I would spend just a few minutes on, but um, just really decided that I wanted to do some teaching on this topic. Um, and then the next question, the third question that we'll dive into, do murderers and rapists go to heaven as long as they've been saved before or after the event? Are what we consider major sins disqualifiers for people to go to heaven? Even if they've claimed to follow Jesus, to have a conversion experience, uh, to have received salvation, whether it's before or after these uh, tragic events, uh, do they go to heaven? And so instead of just spending a few minutes throwing out some blanket answers, I want us just to kind of dive into Scripture this morning because the more I think about it, the more I think that it would be helpful for us. Have you ever wondered when it comes to forgiveness, what it would look like to die with unconfessed sin in your life, to die with unrepentant sin in your life, to, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who claims to have received the free gift of salvation, have 
a portion of your life or maybe a secret place in your life or maybe an open place in your life where you've been involved in sin and you haven't repented from it and you haven't confessed it. It's been a steady diet in your life. And then you die and you stand before God. Have you ever just thought, I wonder what he's going to say about that? Like, I wonder if he's going to have a problem with that. Or is it that I said a prayer at some point in my life and it just kind of wiped away anything that I wanted to do and I could just live any way that I want to live and everything's okay. And the more I got to thinking about it, I was like, we should actually talk about this because I think it will be helpful. So before we go further, let me, let me talk about a few of the words that we're using today. Uh, first, let's talk about the word sin. Uh, I would guess that most of you have some history with the church world, but in case you don't know what sin is, sin is simply an archery term. So if, if we actually had like a target with a bullseye in the middle and you shot a bow and arrow at that target, if you missed the bullseye, it would be called a sin in competition back in the day. Sin simply means you missed the mark. Sin means you weren't perfect. Sin means that you fell short of God's purpose and perfect will for your life. Now, the Bible lists sins, and a lot of sins are common sense that we know we shouldn't do. As children, we learn the difference between right and wrong. And when it comes to following Jesus, we have a responsibility to allow ourselves to live in such a way that sin doesn't separate us from God. Now, we're all born into a nature of sin, so just by being born into this world, we have a sin nature. Um, I didn't have to teach my four-month-old how to be selfish, right? I didn't have to teach her that if she screams and kicks and cries when she's hungry, that we'll bring her some food. I didn't have to teach her that when she's uncomfortable, she can just scream at the top of her lungs and mommy and daddy will come running and tend to her every need. Just by nature, she figured out life's all about me and I get what I want. I get what I need. Didn't have to teach her that. And as we grow older, we learn the differences, but we still struggle with this sin nature that causes us to do things. And sin separates us from God. That's why it's important for us to understand the sacrifice of Jesus. When he died on the cross, he made a way for us to have a relationship with Jesus, that that sin that separated us from God was actually paid by Jesus. He paid the penalty for the sin that we deserve to pay, and he made a way for us to receive righteousness in him, and he traded our guilt and our shame and our transgressions for his righteousness. It's a beautiful story. But when it comes to sin, there's this word confession. And confession is simply where we make a statement to God that we admit and that we have sinned. I have fallen short. I have missed the mark. I have not lived up to the standard of godliness that you've set in your scripture for my life. And we go to God and we say, I'm so sorry that I fell short. Please forgive me of my sin. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, actually verses of Scripture, is 1 John 1, 9 that says, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's many times in my life that I go to God and I say, I blew it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But then there's this word repent. Repentance. Which is a step beyond confession. It's a step beyond admitting guilt. It's a step beyond saying, I'm guilty of living in a way that's contrary to your will for my life. 
And I'm making a conscious decision to turn from that sin and go in an opposite direction. It's almost as if it's a military term, as if like we're taking an about face. We're turning our back to the sin, and now we're walking towards righteousness. So we sin, we all sin, and we fall short of the glory of God. We confess that sin, and Jesus forgives us, but then we repent from the sin, and we turn from those evil, wicked ways, those natural desires that are contrary to God's word, and we seek righteousness. Now, many of us have heard, perhaps, that it's necessary to confess your sin in order to receive forgiveness. Many of us have heard, perhaps, that it's necessary to repent of your sin in order to receive forgiveness. And I would venture to say that there are those of us in the room that have heard that God has forgiven us of all sin, past, present, and future, and there's no need to confess individual sins. And perhaps there are some in the room that have heard uh, that because of God's grace and mercy in our life that we don't have to repent from each and every sin that he just Uh, His grace covers a multitude of sin in our life, and we're able to receive in Him righteousness. And so what we do with our own actions isn't as important. Some of us get bothered by one of those views. If you're in the room and one of those views just kind of makes you tense up, then hopefully today will be helpful in bringing clarity to your life. I'll never forget when I was in middle school, maybe I was in ninth grade, and uh, someone in... Our local high school was killed in a car accident with some friends. He had been uh, in Athens drinking, partying, and on the way back, one of the guys was driving drunk, had an accident, uh, and this young man was killed. And I remember at the funeral, a pastor getting up and saying, when he was a child, he prayed a prayer, and so thank God he's in heaven. And, And it was almost as if his lifestyle that most people who knew him knew was not godly, didn't matter. And I struggled with that. I was like, I was like, so I don't get it. So like we can just say a prayer and it kind of gives us a free pass in life. We can live any way we want. It doesn't matter. We get to go to heaven. I was like, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I was like, why wouldn't anyone take the deal? Why are there people who don't take that deal if that's the case? If you don't have to change your lifestyle, if you can live any way you want, and all you got to do is say a simple prayer, and then you get a free pass into heaven, you don't ever have to suffer consequences eternally. That's a good deal, right? And then I've heard, like, on the opposite end of that, like, if, if you were perhaps to die with unconfessed sin in your life, that would be a problem. Like, when you stand before God... God's going to start at the end of your life and work back towards the beginning and say, you know, you were looking at this, you were saying this, you were doing this. And many of us have at some point in our life had this fear, this fear. What if, what if I like, what if I die on my worst day? What if I have the worst day I've ever had and I miss the mark so badly, and then I'm tragically killed, and I'm standing before God on my worst day ever, what's the outcome going to be? What's my fate going to be? Has everything that I've believed been a lie because in that moment, I failed to be perfect? I think it's important for us to start with an understanding of the word forgiveness, See, for you and for me, in natural terms, forgiveness is almost a mental decision, right? Someone has betrayed us. Someone has said something wrongly. Someone's uh, done us wrong. 
We've had a relationship with them that has been divided because of some action, some word, something against us. And in our mind, we put up this wall that says, you have no place in my life. And what forgiveness is, is forgiveness is saying, okay, I'm going to decide that I'm not going to hold that against you. And we can have a relationship again. I'm not going to count that against you. I'm not going to hold it against you. And it's almost like a, a mental decision. But forgiveness, when we look at the original language in the New Testament, is, is a little deeper than just a mental decision. See, the truth is, is our sin has a price to be paid. And when we sin against God, someone has to pay for that sin. There's a punishment for that sin. Scripture talks about God's wrath being revealed against all mankind, and God's wrath has to be settled in regard to our sin. The beautiful part about the story of following Jesus is that Jesus paid the price for you and for me for the sins that we have committed, the sins that we are committing, and the sins that we will commit. He died on a cross, and he paid the price for that sin. And essentially, it's more than just a mental decision that says, I'm not going to hold this against you. But it's almost as if it's a transaction that says the debt that you owe me has been canceled and removed. And you don't owe me any longer. No longer is there a debt that has to be paid on your behalf. Forgiveness says I'm wiping away your debt. Now, some of us in the room, we have debt. We know what debt is. We owe someone financially. And for someone to come to us and just say, you no longer owe us, for a lot of us, that would mean, a, that would be a big deal, to have a debt canceled. And that's essentially what forgiveness is in Scripture. And what I want to do is I want to read a couple of Scriptures to you um, on the topic of forgiveness. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse number 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossus, and he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So God has rescued us in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in Christ we have been rescued and he has canceled the debt that our sins should have cost us. The penalty of our wrongdoings that has been canceled because of what Christ has done this. I love the I love the picture of God rescuing us. I've I've had some friends that I've been in situations with, both in a lake and in swimming pools, uh, where people weren't strong swimmers, and I have seen friends of mine gasping for their life, and someone come along and pull them out of the water. Now, if someone didn't pull them out of the water, there's a good chance that some of my friends would have died in those moments. They couldn't help themselves, whether they were tired or they simply didn't know how to swim very well. But someone rescued them. They did for them what they could not do for themselves. This is a picture of what Jesus did. When we were lost, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in him. He rescued us. It's a beautiful picture. And he canceled the debt that we owed him. The price that had to be paid for our sins was paid by Jesus on the cross. Ephesians chapter number 1, verses 6 through 8. Again, this is Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. He says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him we have redemption 
through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God's grace makes available for us to be redeemed and have forgiveness for our sins that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He spoiled us. He went above and beyond to extend grace to us when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, when there was nothing we could do to acquire it in our own merits. He lavished grace on us and offered forgiveness of sins. It's a beautiful picture of of us owing God a debt because of our lifestyle, because of our decisions, because of our shortcomings. And Jesus taking that guilt and that shame off of us, that debt off of us, and canceling everything that we owed. Forgiveness is one of the greatest benefits of following Jesus. Because every sin has to be answered for. Every sin has to be paid for. Either we will pay for it, or we can allow Jesus to pay for it. That's why it's so important for us to receive God's forgiveness, which begins with confession and repentance. Acts chapter number 10, verse 43 all the prophets testify him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If we believe in Jesus, what we receive in return is forgiveness. This is great news. It's a beautiful picture. So when we come to Jesus, when we receive that forgiveness, he cleanses us. He makes us pure. But then doesn't life go on? And I don't know about you, but I've been following Jesus since November 1st, 1987. And I can think of at least a couple of times where I've fallen short. That's a joke. A lot of times I haven't lived a perfect life. I've made mistakes. I have made decisions. I have done things that have not glorified Jesus, that have brought shame to the name of Christ. What do you do with that sin? What happens with that sin? Was that sin covered when we initially received salvation? Here's one of the most beautiful pictures that I find in Scripture. John chapter number 19, verses 28 through 30. This is Jesus in the midst of his ultimate sacrifice that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us when he was given his life for us. It wasn't some lethal injection. It wasn't a pill that he swallowed. It was a a horrendous death on a Roman cross by way of crucifixion. And it says later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said three words that have changed the course of humanity forever. He said, it is finished. When his work was completed, he made a a final statement. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. There's something about completeness that is gratifying. If you've ever completed a degree, or you've completed a study, or you've completed a task at your job, 
or you've completed a stage of life, or you've finished a race that you've trained for for months and even years, or you've finished some goals financially or with your health. There's something about finishing that makes the journey worthwhile. In Jesus' statement, when he completed his mission on the earth, God loved us all enough to send Jesus to the earth to live among us, And he gave his life for us. And when his mission was fulfilled, when he completed everything, he said, it is finished. And there's this terminology in the theology world, in the world of doctrine, called the finished work of Christ. And essentially what it teaches us is that when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, What he was proclaiming was not only is this process over, not only is my pain that I've endured these last few days finished, not only am I done with my task, but he was saying for all of mankind, for all of humanity, I have paid the price. I have settled the debt. I have taken upon myself what you all, we all, have owed by way of sin. And he bore it upon himself. And he paid the ultimate price for your sin and for my sin. And here's the beautiful part about it. It wasn't just one of your sins. It wasn't just a series of your sins. But it was all of your sins. Past, present, and future. Any sin that you've ever committed, when Jesus said, it is finished, he paid the price for that sin. Any sin that's present in your life right now in this moment, Jesus paid a price for that when he said, it is finished, and he gave his life for you and for me. And any sin that you're going to commit tomorrow or next week or 10 years from now or 30 years from now, when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, he provided payment for that sin as well. It's forgiven. But you have to receive it. You have to receive it. I've heard of someone close to me who had an uncle that offered to pay for college for their entire family. And this family said, no, we don't want you to do that. They didn't get college paid for. Why? Because they didn't receive it. Not because it wasn't available, but because they didn't receive it. And there are men, there are women, there are students in this world that have had all their sins paid for. That Jesus has borne the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and every evil, wicked act that any of us can and will ever commit, Jesus has borne that upon himself and he's paid the price for it. Past, present, and future. But some people go through life and they never receive that free gift of salvation. They never allow Jesus to rescue them from themselves. They never take that payment and allow God's sacrifice to be used on their behalf. See, forgiveness starts with salvation. And when you come to Jesus and you recognize, I am a sinner, I have fallen short, In and of myself, I am not worthy of a relationship with Jesus. To all those things, I would say you are correct. 
you have fallen short, you don't deserve a relationship with Jesus. But when we come to him in that state of mind and we say, I owe a lot, but I want to trade my sin, my guilt, my shame for your righteousness. And I recognize that you died for me in my place. And I'm going to allow the payment that you paid to be sufficient to cover me. I surrender my life to you, Lord Jesus. And I receive forgiveness in that moment. There is not a sin in your life that keeps you from a relationship with Jesus. And I want to talk to us about two types of forgiveness. First is a positional or a judicial forgiveness. And that's just what I described. That in that moment, Scripture says we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he takes us into his family. That we have a place with him in the family of God. He has forgiven our sins. He has made us pure. Scripture says he's brought us from death to life. He's made us a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. It's a beautiful picture for our life. And we are forever positioned in the family of God. And we've received positional forgiveness. Think of it this way. If you've got a son or a daughter, and that son or daughter sins against you. They betray you. They harm you in some way. Do they stop being your son or daughter? No. They don't cease to be your son or daughter just because of a decision. But does it create separation in a relationship? Absolutely. That's why in our world today, there are sons and daughters, there are brothers and sisters, there are moms and dads, there are husbands and wives that live with such tension in their relationship because it's a relational forgiveness that hasn't taken place. The positional forgiveness is a done deal. You're still my son, you're still my dad, you're still my grandmother, you're still my aunt can't change that. I can't like remove you from that position in my life, but I don't have to live in harmony with you. And we have so many family members in our world today that are at odds because there hasn't been relational forgiveness. There hasn't been relational forgiveness. See, what happens is when we come to Christ and we receive salvation and he makes all things new, we have positional forgiveness that our sin has been atoned for. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven past, present, and future. It's a done deal. You can take it to the bank. Jesus paid the price for your sin. If you've received that, it is a done deal. But let me just tell you, if you've ever been in a season of your life after you've committed to following Jesus where you haven't lived in a godly manner and you've allowed sin to creep into your life and you've allowed your eyes to view things, you've allowed your ears to hear things, you've allowed your hands to touch things, you've been places you shouldn't go, you've done things you shouldn't do, then you know that there are seasons in your life by which relationally, the relationship between you and your heavenly Father, God, gets strained. 
None of us would say to a son, you can treat me any way you want. You can take advantage of me. You can take all my money. You can, you can rob me. You can betray me. And everything's just going to stay the same. I'm always going to love you just the same. Things are going to be great. Still going to have you over for Thanksgiving. We're going to have a great meal like we always have. Still going to get you a Christmas gift. No, there's going to be a strain in that relationship. And what sin does after salvation is it puts a, a strain on our relationship with God. Like me, I'm sure you've experienced times or seasons in your life where you made decisions you shouldn't have made and you just felt like, man, just things aren't right between me and God. It doesn't mean that we're no longer saved. It doesn't mean that the rescue that he provided for us isn't in effect anymore. It simply means that we've allowed there to be conflict in our relationship. That's why it's important for us to continue holding on to 1 John 1, 9. It says, if you confess your sin, if you admit to God your sin, if you lay it all on the table and ask him for forgiveness, and he'll cast that sin as far as the east is for the west. The penalty, the payment has already been sealed. It's a done deal. But relationally, that strain can be done away with. And you can be back and good standing and great relationship with Jesus. So we have to confess our sins. But even more important than that is the reality that we should repent from our sins. How many times would it take for someone in your life to betray you, to hurt you, to harm you, and you tell them, it's okay, I forgive you, for them to do the same thing again and you say, it's okay, I forgive you. And them do the same thing again and you say, it's okay, I forgive you. At some point, you're going to say, you coming to me asking for forgiveness isn't genuine. You have no intentions of changing your ways. Why should I offer you that forgiveness? And it's important for us to understand that God desires for us to live in harmony with him. And if we allow sin to creep into our life, small compromises become huge mountains. And we find ourselves in a place where we're not in harmony with God. And it's not really enough just to identify, to recognize that you're living life in sin. But it's important for us to turn from that sin to try to live godly, to seek righteousness, to seek holiness. I'm currently in a small group with a group of men here in the church, and we're discussing a book called Model Man and praying that we'll all be godly examples for our, our kids and the generation and the world around us. And this week, just yesterday, actually, we studied a chapter on sexual purity and this war that the enemy has waged against even Christians by which he's tried to get us to compromise our integrity and our godliness because of sexual sins, sexual immorality. I was astonished to read statistics in this chapter from studies that cited that 50% of people, of men who call themselves Christians, are addicted to pornography. That across our world, our country, studies have revealed that 57% of men, and Christians are included in this statistic, but it's not only Christians, 
57% of men have admitted to being unfaithful to their spouse. And 74% say, if I would never get caught, and I know I'm caught, I would be unfaithful to my spouse. Now, when we allow small compromises into our life, it leads to big mountains. And small compromises leads to huge sins in our life. That's why we hear of government officials. We hear of uh, church leadership and pastors. We hear of teachers and administrators. We hear of people in the public eye, athletes, who are caught in sin. And while most of the world simply thinks, I'm glad I'm not in the public spotlight, they're left to deal with the shame and the struggle that comes from everyone knowing their business. Most of us would just prefer that people didn't know our business, but can we be honest enough this morning to admit that we all struggle with things? That sin is not something we're immune to? That just because we call ourselves Christians doesn't mean that we will never need to confess sin, that we will never need to repent from sin. We can take heart in the fact that we have positional, judicial forgiveness. That if you die on your worst day, that if you're tragically, your life is tragically ended on your worst day, it doesn't mean that you have lost your position as a child of God. But we should never seek to live life at odds with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, should we? So we should practice confession. We should practice repentance. Here's perhaps the biggest reason that we should confess and repent from our sins as followers of Jesus. It's because God disciplines those of us who need to be disciplined. When your kids sin, when your kids do things they're not supposed to do, you discipline them, right? We all discipline in different ways. But we discipline our kids. And I believe that God does the same thing. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse number 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And when you sin against your father, there's discipline that comes from that. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. If you never feel an overwhelming sense of betrayal, that you have missed the mark, that your lifestyle has grieved the heart of God, if you've never found yourself in the midst of consequences of those decisions that you've made, and understanding that God is trying to teach me something through this process and mold me and make me into someone more like His Son, Jesus, then you're missing the point of his discipline. Verse 9, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? 
Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. See, when we make mistakes and God's discipline corrects and we confess and repent, it leads to holiness. It makes us more godly. It helps us to become more Christ-like. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, maybe you've got a family member that you're at odds with that you haven't spoken for for days, weeks, months, or years. And maybe you're okay with that. But would perhaps the thought of everything being back to normal, not at least in some way, be enticing to you? If you didn't have to live with that relational gap, wouldn't life be much more peaceful? And in the same way, we should seek to live holy, godly lives. And when we don't, because we won't always, then we can simply confess our sin and He'll forgive us relationally. And He'll lead us to become more holy as we repent from those. Revelation chapter number 3, verse 19. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Stop making those same decisions. Stop living that same lifestyle that's contrary to God's word. Accept his discipline. Accept his repukes. And repent. Change your ways. Stop going down that same path. And he will make you more righteous because of it. Now, at the very beginning of the church, when the church was birthed in Acts chapter number 2, we see that repentance was at the heart of a relationship with Jesus. Now, Acts chapter number 2, Jesus had already ascended to go be with the Father. This was after he was crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected. He spent 40 days with some of his closest followers, and then he ascended to the Father. He gave instructions for those close to him to wait for him in Jerusalem in an upper room. And so they all gathered 120 men and they waited for a gift that God promised them. It was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they went out from there and crowds were amazed that they were all speaking in different languages. They were declaring the praises of God in languages that they didn't speak. And they began to ask you know, what's going on? What's happening? And a man named Peter, who only months before had denied Christ, who had sinned, who had not been who he should have been in Christ, stood up before the crowd and he began to declare the goodness and the truth of the gospel of Jesus to this great crowd of people. I want you to listen to what he says in verses number 37 and 38 of Acts chapter 2. When the people heard his message, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond? I know something is stirring in me that something has to be done. I understand that God offers me something that I haven't received yet. What do I do? Here's his instructions to them. Peter replied, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here is positional forgiveness. You repent. You turn from your lifestyle that's ungodly and you turn to God and seek to live a righteous life. In that process, he molds you and makes you into who he wants you to be. He rescues you from yourself. He makes you a new creation. But then he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have the privilege of living our lives as Christians who reminds us, why are you looking at that? Why are you doing that? And he brings conviction to our hearts. And it's that gentle reminder from God's Holy Spirit that helps us to continually receive relational forgiveness for the sins that we commit after salvation. Does that make sense? So if you die on your worst day and you've received Christ's sacrifice, you've been saved, you've been rescued from yourself, you've received life when you once were dead. And the payment of Jesus for your sins has been received. Even if you die on your worst day, you don't have to live life with the fear. I may have blown it. I may have missed my opportunity to make heaven because I had a bad day or I had a bad week. You're a child of God. You have positional forgiveness in him. But let us always seek to have continual relational forgiveness. That there's not a strain in our relationship with the Heavenly Father. For some of us, the idea of just getting to heaven is the greatest part of salvation. But can I tell you that walking with Jesus in stride with His Spirit is the greatest honor and privilege that we'll ever have. That eternity for us doesn't start when we die, it starts when we come to life. And we have the opportunity to live life to its full. We have the opportunity to live the abundance that God has set before us. But it requires us to live holy, godly, righteous lives. And that requires us to confess sins that we have and will commit. And it requires us to repent from lifestyle decisions that dishonor God. So, to answer the questions, do you have to repent from every sin to be forgiven? Relationally, if you die with some sin in your life, it doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven, go to hell, as long as you have been saved, as long as you've received forgiveness positionally in Christ. As long as you've received salvation, your worst day isn't going to keep you from experiencing everything that you've hoped for. Do you have to confess every sin to be forgiven? Positionally, no. You may die, and there may be some sin that you committed that you forgot to confess, that you didn't realize was sinful in that stage of your life. And that doesn't mean that you aren't going to get to experience the glories of heaven with an incredible God that loves you and gave his life for you.
But relationally, yes. We need to ask God to forgive us. We need to ask, we need to repent from our sins that create strain in our relationship with God. And lastly, do murderers and rapists go to heaven as long as they've been saved before or after the event? And like any other sin, if someone has truly been saved, and I say truly been saved because I don't know your heart and you don't know my heart. I can claim to follow Jesus. You can claim to follow Jesus. Only God knows our heart. But if you've been truly saved, a sin isn't going to keep you from heaven. Now, you say, but a Christian should never murder anyone. And surely if a Christian commits murder, they weren't really a Christian, right? Where do we draw that line, though? I mean, think about it. Is it possible for a Christian to tell a lie? Is it possible for a Christian to lust in their heart? Is it possible for a Christian to steal or cheat on their taxes? Is it possible for a Christian to get so angry they say things they shouldn't say? Do you know King David was an adulterer? And God called him a man after his own heart. Not only did he commit adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, but he had her husband murdered to cover it up. Do you know Moses killed a man and fled from Egypt? Yet God chose him to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery and bondage. A murderer being used of God. Do you know in the bloodline of Jesus is a prostitute named Rahab? That some of the most vile, wicked, evil deeds that we could think of were committed by people in Scripture that God used in incredible ways. And what I want to leave you with is if you're in this room and you carry the guilt or you carry the shame of a sin or a mistake or a lifestyle, and you haven't confessed it, you haven't repented from it, there is still hope for you. There is no sin that would cause you to be too far gone from a relationship with a God that loves you. And he paid the price for that sin. And if you'll receive that forgiveness, you don't have to carry the guilt. and You don't have to carry the shame. And you don't have to let something in the past haunt you for the rest of your life because you can receive forgiveness for your sins.